Amen. Well, thank you. Good morning. It is good to be with you all. I'm thankful that you're here again. Thankful that you are uh, with us. Um, man, I'm, I'm trying to make sure my phone is silent this morning. I, people have asked me, hey, Pastor, why do you keep a phone up on the podium? It's not because I'm checking sports reports or weather. It's because of your sake that I have this up here. It's a timer. Um, and so I like to keep an idea of how long I am going Uh, Because if we start to draw into the hour mark, it's probably time for me to wind down. And so that's uh, why that is up there. It's easier for me to see that uh, than a clock on the back of the wall. I remember I was at a church preaching once, and they said, Pastor, if you want to keep up with the time, uh, be sure to look at the clock at the back of the wall. And I want you to know that I looked at it, and I could tell there was a clock there. But I'm going to be forthright with you that my vision is not what it used to be. And I knew the hands were moving, and I had no idea what was going on. And so I just faithfully preached for roughly 90 minutes and had no idea. It felt like a solid 40, okay? So when you see the phone up here, that's literally what I'm doing. It's my timer. It lets me know uh, where we are. Again, I want to tell you it is good to be back. I am I'm thankful to be back, thankful to be back in front of you. I am thankful to God uh, for his grace and how Corey shared the word of God this past week uh, faithfully from Genesis chapter 37. And if I could put in a shameless plug for uh, Corey and for several of our elders and teachers in our church, if you enjoyed hearing from the word from these particular brothers, uh, particularly Corey or any of the other uh, leaders in our church, then let me encourage you to come join us in this room on Sunday mornings for adult discipleship beginning at 9 30. We have coffee in the back. You come in here and we get in the word together. And right now, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly, which I still believe it does, uh, they are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes together, which uh, really is a great wisdom book, a wisdom literature uh, to walk through together. So please come and be a part of that. Uh, I'm also well aware that our ladies gathered uh, this past Friday night as well. Um, so I'm thankful for Aaron uh, for coordinating that, Sharon, and I believe Lydia led uh, this week in teaching, if I'm getting that correct, right? Lydia, you did? Yes or no? I haven't heard any complaints, so praise God for his goodness. Uh, You did great? She did great? You did what now? Okay, we'll let it go. All right, perfect. This is all being recorded now. No. Um, Anyway, I'm thankful for that. I do want to let you know that our ladies do gather the first Friday of every month, and so ladies, if you would, make plans to be here, be a part of that Um, We'll try to keep you as updated as we can. Um, When that comes up, we kind of dropped the ball on that this week. Uh, I take responsibility for that. Um, So, yeah, why not? So anyway, so I'll put that one on me. But anyway, make sure that's on your calendar. We want you to be here for that, and we want you to join us for Adult Discipleship. Well, this morning we are back in 1 Peter. Um, again, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. This is, again, Peter is now going to write about our Christian identity and how it is that we are now being built up, which is the phrase that Peter is going to use in your writing. And before we get into this text this morning, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever given much thought to who we now are in Christ, or better yet, a better question is this Have you given any thought or consideration to what it is that we are now being built up into because of Christ and through Christ? You see, here's the truth of the gospel. The truth is is that we weren't just made to become converts and then to be abandoned, left alone to figure out our own faith. That would actually be bad evangelism and honestly, bad Christianity. But rather, as members of the local church, we need to realize that it is Christ who is still calling us. It is Christ by His Spirit who is still molding us and shaping us into what it is 
that he desires for us to be. Now, i got to be honest with you. As a new believer in high school, I had no idea what my pastor and mentor was talking about when he shared those very words with me until he said to me one Wednesday afternoon, what we do here is practice for what is to come. In other words, this life that we are now living is heaven practice. And so I'm going to ask you the same question that he asked me that has, that has stayed with me since that time. How are we practicing, or better yet, how are we preparing ourselves for what is to come? And as we're going to see this morning, Peter will write, and he will write about our preparation for what is to come. And he says to the elect exiles that it all begins with knowing our identity and knowing who Christ is molding us and shaping us to be. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are going to begin reading in verse 4. And if you can and you are able and you have found your place in the Word, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Peter writing to the elect exiles. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now here in our text, Peter reminds us and writes to remind the elect exiles, if you will, that our faith is what defines us. You see, Peter here reminds the church that because God chose us, we are now a chosen race. And this is the very foundation of our identity as believers in Christ. Now, to understand while Peter is now saying this, we have to be reminded of how we even got to this point in the first place. So let's just do a recap, if you will, of everything that's taken place from this point all the way back to the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. So far, Peter says to the church, to the members who are the elect exiles, that they have now been chosen or set apart by God. He established this in the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, according to Peter, God then sent Jesus Christ to become our living hope, and it is the Spirit that now sanctifies us as we grow in Him. 
And because of these things, which has been given to us by God, this redemption that we now have in Christ, this this growing and and edification and, and correction that comes by the Spirit of God, since we have been given this, we now know that we have an inheritance that is awaiting us when we are reunited back with God in glory. So, because of the inheritance... Because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, because of God's sovereignty and God's providential plan, we are now called. Peter says we are called to do away with sinful desires. He then teaches that we are called to seek to be holy as God is holy, and we are called to live in holy wonder and awe of who God is as we worship the one true living God. So as we come to our text today, Peter's going to continue to write, and he's going to continue to write with the purpose of encouraging the local body of believers. He's writing to continue to exalt the believers and remind them of their identity in Christ and remind them of what it is that they are now being built up into. So let's pay attention this morning as Peter continues to edify and encourage the elect exiles. And let's watch as he will do so by writing to the church both about their own identity, but how in that identity that is now theirs, we, the church today, should see how it is that we are being built up. Peter begins by telling us that we are being built up in Christ. We see him write about this in verses 4 through 8. Notice Peter opens by saying, and as you come to him. Now let's pause for a moment because here Peter's literally saying to us, listen, all that we are, all that we have, all of it rests on who Jesus is. You see, Peter would want the church to remember that if there is no Jesus, then we are lost. If there is no Jesus, then we are lost. Hopeless. If there is no Jesus, then there is no promised future. If there is no Jesus, then there is no thought of an inheritance that is coming our way. Therefore, as believers, along with the elect exiles, Jesus, according to Peter, cannot nor should ever be an afterthought in our lives and in our worship. You see, what Peter has done in this first phrase is he has put the centrality of Jesus Christ together for the church to see. Now notice he's going to continue to unpack the centrality of Christ in verses 4 and 5. He says, listen, if we come to Christ who is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, then we become like living stones. He's going to show us this point again when he says in verse 6, if Jesus is the cornerstone, then coming back to verse 5, then we are being built up as a spiritual house. Again, Peter puts the centrality of Christ on display in verse 4 when he says, because Jesus is the chosen one, then according to verse 9, we are now a chosen race. You see, Peter's point was very simple. Jesus Christ must be central to who we are as a church. Jesus has to be central to who we say we profess to believe in. 
And if Jesus is to be central, that means his word given to us by God has to be central to who we are as Christians today. In other words, if you want to know Jesus Christ, then know the word of God. If you want to know who you now are in Christ, then know Jesus, but know Jesus according to his word. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus teaches us this very same point when he refers to himself as the vine, and he calls the disciples the branches. But notice how the verse ends. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, Peter is literally taking a page right from Jesus' own words, and he teaches the church that Jesus has to be central to who we are because Jesus is all that we are. As Christians, our identity has to be wrapped in him. Our identity has to be intertwined with him. Now, this would lead us to the question for Peter, which is this. Why would this be so important for the elect exiles? Why would this this point be so important for the church today? Well, as Peter's going to continue in verse 5, he simply says to us, listen, we cannot be a holy priesthood. In other words, we can now not be in the lineage and the inheritance and own the inheritance that we now have in Christ because of our adoption by God. We cannot experience or know that apart from Christ. He also says that we cannot offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God if there is no phrase through Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the phrase I would probably underline in my Bible this morning today. You see, we can do nothing. And we are nothing apart from Christ. Now again... Some people would hear that and say, wait a minute, pastor, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good in this world. And you're right, they are. There's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff in this world. You're right, they are. But the reality is this, all the good the world will ever do will never come close to earning the kingdom of God. We will only enter through Christ and knowing him as Savior and Lord. You see, apart from Christ, Peter would say, you are without hope. Apart from Christ, we are without promise. Apart from Christ, we are without a future. Thus, why we cannot nor should not ever attempt to compartmentalize our lives from our faith. Now, I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. You see, there are many Christians today, particularly amongst Western evangelical Christians, and I'm talking about us Folks around us who call themselves Christians, they seek to section off their life. They say things like this, I have my work life, I have my family life, and then I have my church life, and then I have my Jesus life. And what I try to do with those compartments is I I take little beads, if you will, and they represent time, and I give beads here depending on what I believe is important. And so sometimes the family may get a little more than the church. Sometimes my work may get a little more than Jesus. We section everything off, thinking that all of a sudden we can come to church and worship Jesus on Sunday, but then we can walk into work on Monday and pretend like we didn't know the guy that we just worshipped. And what Peter tells us is this, listen, no. You can't do that with your life. If you were truly indeed 
in Christ, then Christ is now intertwined into our lives to the point that the reflection of Jesus Christ can be seen in every aspect of our lives. It means that when we go to work, we work as if we were working for the Lord and we seek to glorify Him. If we spend time with our family and our children and our grandchildren, we are seeking to teach them up in the way that they should go so that they would never depart from it. It means that when we are with our friends, whether they are believers or whether they are not, we are seeking to encourage and edify them according to the word of God so that either they will come to faith in Christ or they will be encouraged by their faith in Christ. You see, Peter explains more about this thought when he then quotes Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8 in the following verses in verses 6 through 8 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, if I could, I just want to add a footnote here. Notice again, Peter reminding us about the importance of the word of God. Notice notice how he starts verse 6. He says, for it stands in Scripture, thus revealing to the church, to the elect exiles, the power and the truth that is found in knowing the word of God. He says, listen, this is what the word of God says. I'm not telling you something brand new. This came from God's word. And then notice what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And again in verse 7, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now let's just pause right there. Because I want to go ahead and acknowledge this morning that that there's a popular and true interpretation of this particular passage that tells us there is glory and honor for those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. And yet for those who do not believe, those who reject the cornerstone have, according to verse 8, have now and will experience a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Peter says, hey, this is a good interpretation. This is actually a very good interpretation, but I want to I add a, a note to this if I could. Notice what Peter's doing in this moment. Peter, by explaining these passages to us, giving us these passages, giving them to the elect exiles, he himself is refuting the fact that he is the rock of the church. Rather, what Peter is doing is he's pointing to Jesus as the foundation. He's pointing to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Thus, when Peter confesses in the gospel to Jesus, and he looks upon Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus says back to him, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. Peter is acknowledging that what Jesus was saying is he was saying that he was going to continue to build his spiritual house. And Peter, by his confession, like us today as a believers, are a part of that very foundation and we are now a part of that very building I'm sorry Catholic Church you got it wrong about your priests they're not the rock only Jesus Christ is as believers in Christ we are simply building upon what the Lord has already done and what the Lord is doing in us and what the Lord is doing through us but now come back to the text Notice the imagery that we have in this passage. Notice what Peter gives us is a a specific scene that is being played out that really honestly would make complete and total sense to anyone who would be reading Peter's letter during his day. You see, before erecting a building, the builders and the stonemasons 
would search through piles of rocks and boulders looking for the perfect stone, looking for the perfect size and the perfect shape to become the foundation or the cornerstones of a new building. And from there, they would build with stones in similar shape and fashion. And then hear what Peter says. Peter tells the exiles that this world had found the perfect stone and yet they tossed it aside. The world had found the perfect cornerstone and yet it treated it as rejected. And yet this was the perfect precious stone that was chosen by God. Don't miss Peter's point in these verses. He is saying to us, listen, Jesus is highly valued. Jesus is honored before God. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the dove descended upon Jesus? What was the words that we heard according to the word of God? God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Peter is reminding us that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And though Jesus was rejected by man, it was still Jesus who was chosen by God. And Jesus has now become the cornerstone to which all of us are now being formed and shaped into his image and into his likeness in order to be built up as a spiritual house. You see, here's our takeaway from verses 4 through 8. By being built up in Christ, we recognize that Jesus Christ is and always will be central to our identity. In other words, Christ is now interwoven into all that we are. Jesus Christ is now interwoven into all that we do. We offer sacrifices through Christ who is perfect. We are now a priesthood that is being made into a spiritual house, not because of what we offer or because of what we have done or because of the good we think we can do, but rather because of who Christ is and what it is that Christ has done on our behalf. Praise be to God. So I have to ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ central to your identity? Is Christ woven into every part of your life? Is Christ who you wake up and worship? Is Christ your example? Do you seek to honor him in your work? Do you seek to make much of him in your words? Do you sit with your family and speak of the wonder and the goodness that is Jesus Christ our Lord? Is the word itself woven into every part of your life, both as your guide and as you seek to grow in him? You see, as Christians, we are being continually built up in Christ. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this reflected in our lives today? Better yet, tomorrow's Monday, and by God's grace, we will be given a Monday. And if not, then we have been given eternity. Win-win for the Christian. But in tomorrow, 
Will we glorify Christ and reflect Him? Or will we seek to compartmentalize Him as if we never knew Him? This leads to Peter's second point that we see in verses 9 and 10. Peter not only tells us that we are being built up in Christ, but notice the, very, the second thing he says. He now says to us that we are now being built up in community. Now notice that Peter, through this particular text, reminds the church that we are being built into a spiritual house. Again, we are being built into a priesthood, but this is not meant to be something that we do alone. Rather, we are on a spiritual journey together, seeking to grow in our grace and wisdom and understanding of the Lord. We are, we are not alone in the forming and the shaping that comes at the hand of God the Father. Notice what Peter's about to tell us. He's about to say to us, we need the local church to remind and encourage us to continue to grow and to continue to grow in our shaping that is taking place within our lives through Christ. Notice how in the text Peter calls us a chosen race. He calls us a holy nation. He calls us a, a people for his own possession. Now, if you look at this text in its entirety, notice that Peter's descriptions of Jesus are always singular. But yet, when it comes to his description of God's people, it is always plural. Meaning this, following Jesus Christ entails that we join in community with the local church. I love what C.E.B. Cranfield says about this point. He says, to accept the Redeemer means also accepting the people whom he has redeemed. Now, you may sit here and look at me and say, Pastor, we got that. Clearly, we are here. Thank you and praise God. I'm thankful you're here. Please hear me on that. But let me see if I can give you a better idea of what Peter's talking about here. You see, the Christian who walks around proclaiming to be part of the universal church and followers of Jesus, but is too good, too busy, or too self-sufficient for the local church, according to the word of God, that person is a walking contradiction. I'm going to say that again. The person, the Christian, who walks around proclaiming to be part of the universal church who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but they are too good, too busy, too self-sufficient for the local church is a walking contradiction according to the Word of God. You see, when you look to the Word of God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we see that God has set His people apart from the nations, but He does it with them together. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, under Christ, we see it is God who sets us as believers apart as we now live among the nations. But notice this, he does it together. You see, the truth is you cannot be godly and fruitful without joining God's family, which is the local church. Because the reality is this. If there are Christians who are not a part of the local church, then how can we ever testify to their faith in Jesus Christ? Some people would say, well, what about closed countries where people are living individually? Yeah, I know about those too. And guess what? I read their stories as well. And guess what they do? They find a way to get together. They're not there alone, and they recognize it. You see, the church 
is one community. One community made up of local bodies that are centered on Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Then let me ask this question. If we were truly meant to simply be the universal church, which by the way, let me define the universal church for a moment. The universal church is where we can agree on the man, the mission, and the message. Simply put, layman definition. Please don't argue with me on that later. We can argue about this all day. Okay? What I mean is this. Let me give a little better definition. In heaven, we will be a part of the one church under the umbrella of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to unpack that further. Layman terms. I get it. Not Spurgeon, not Luther, simply Johnny. Layman. There will not be in heaven a section for Baptists. There will not be Reformed Baptists sitting closer to the front and Independent Fundamentalist Baptists sitting towards the back because that's what they do. There will not be a section for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And we're separated because one actually partakes in wine and the other prefers Welch's. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be a, a Methodist section sitting in a far corner trying to figure out what they believe. And the rest of us are over here going, we're going to stay here until they get this thing sorted out. They got all eternity. They're good. It's not going to happen that way. Oh, by the way, there's not going to be a center section in heaven for the Pentecostals handing out tambourines. And then the Baptists on the far left looking at them going, no thanks, bro, we're good. Don't do hands, don't do tambourines, and we don't dance. Not happening. By the way, the Baptists are going to argue over that. The Reformed guys are going to turn around and look at the independent guys and go, oh, no, sir, you got that wrong too. We dance. We raise hands. We just know our Bible better. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Kidding. You're not going to see that in heaven is what I'm talking about. So when we speak of the universal church, we are speaking of the church united under the umbrella of God that has been redeemed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, okay? But in the midst of the universal church, in our world today, we have local churches. And these local churches are beacons of hope and grace and mercy that is found through knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you see, we can't simply say, well, I don't want to join with the local church because I'm a part of Church Universal. Well, then who, wants to test, who can testify to your faith? Better yet, if what you were saying is true, then let me ask this question. If this is what Paul believed in the New Testament, then why did he write so many letters dealing with so many issues with so many different and unique churches? He would have just written to the Corinthians and been done. There wouldn't even have been a second letter to the Corinthians. He'd have been like, look, 1 Corinthians, boom, one and done. Move on, send it to the Galatia. But he didn't. If we weren't meant to be a part of the local church, then let me take it a step further. In Revelation, why do we see seven letters to the seven churches where Jesus Christ himself speaks specifically to the issues within those churches? If it was all just for the church universal, he'd have written one letter and it'd have been done. Yes, we are a part of the universal church. But let's not miss the fact that we are also called to be a part of the local church with unique and distinct 
markers like all of our sister churches around us. And so as Christians today, we cannot nor should not ever neglect the responsibility and the call to be a part of the local church. But then notice what Peter does with this point. He's going to encourage us about what it means to be a part of the local church. He says, listen, you're a part of the local church. You are affirming together what it is that you believe about Jesus Christ and what it is that you now have in Christ. And so Peter says, hey, listen, here is now your new identity. He starts by saying as the local church, you are a chosen people, meaning that God has taken us in. And since Jesus was chosen by God, we too are now chosen because we belong to Jesus Christ. We were redeemed by Christ, and therefore, we are a part of this community of faith that God has called together. But Peter's not done there. He says, not only are you a chosen people, but you're a a royal priesthood. Peter says, listen, you now belong to the king, which means you are now his priests. Meaning that we now stand before God. We now stand with God in strength as we serve him and as we represent him to a world that desperately needs to know him. He goes on from there and says, and that's not all. You're not just a chosen people and a royal priesthood. But now he says, man, church, you are a holy nation. Literally, Peter takes this from Exodus chapter 19, where like Israel with God consecrated in the Old Testament, now because of Jesus Christ, we have been consecrated or set apart for a life with him, for a life by him, and for a life through him. But Peter's not done. He says, listen, church, you're not just a chosen people and a royal priesthood. You're not just a a holy nation. But you're a people for his own possession. Meaning that we have been formed by God. For God. And thus we enjoy, hear this, we enjoy the privileged state of being God's people. We enjoy in the riches that come when we are reunited with him in glory. And as if all this wasn't good news enough, Peter then says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, as God's people who have now been redeemed, we get to declare his praises. We get to herald God as sovereign Lord over all. In other words, hear Peter's words. As those set apart by God. That would be Christians in the room. Those who declare that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. You now have the privileged state of being God's people, which leads to privileged action of God being praised and God being glorified. That is the call of the believer. The privileged state of being God's people, which leads to the privileged action of God being praised. Notice that Peter reminds the church that we now have the distinct privilege of making Jesus Christ known. I mean, do you see it? Man, let me, let, me, let me see if I can unpack this a little bit further so you can understand more of what Peter's talking about right here in verses 9, really just in verse 9 at this point. 
You see, as Christians, we get to talk about Jesus Christ. And it's not just a call. Peter says it's a privilege. We get to share the gospel. Not because we're commanded, which is true. But Peter says it's a privilege. We get to gather with our church like-minded body of believers for the purpose of worship or Sunday evenings for the purpose of prayer or whenever the church gathers to meet for the purpose of fellowship or for the purpose of service. And when we get to do it, we should never feel like we're doing it out of obligation, but rather we should see it as a privilege. Don't ever take for granted what it is that we now have as a church. Don't ever take for granted what can be done as a church because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Peter, coming back to the text, after reminding the church of all that they are and reminding them about how they are being built up both in Christ and now in community, notice what he says to him in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice Peter's contrast here really should resonate for us as it did for the elect exiles. Peter's reminding them again of the encouragement that they now have. He says, listen, you were once in darkness, but now by God's grace, you walk in light. You were once alone in your sin, but now you are a part of the family of God. You were once awaiting judgment. Judgment where we know according to the word that our sin leads to death. And Peter says, but now you have received mercy. You see, Peter reminds the church of what it is that we now have. We now are walking in light. We now are a part of a family. And we have now received mercy. Don't forget who you are as you're being built up. Peter's takeaway, I believe, for verses 9 and 10 is this. As Christians, we should be encouraged that we are being built up together as a community chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and set apart for His good pleasure and work. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you you see the need to grow together as a local church? Are we seeking the pleasure and the joy that comes from growing together as a community? I mean, if you're here today and you're feeling isolated and alone, can I ask you a question? Have you looked around the room for just a moment and asked yourself this question? How have I gotten to know this person on the other side of the room? Because clearly they are here and they believe in the same things I believe in. Maybe I should spend a little more time with them. How are you encouraging one another to grow together? You see, as Christians, Peter calls us to continue to hold tight to the word. To recognize that God, by his sovereign plan, is continually building each of us up. And through Peter's words in verses 4 through 10, we see that we are now being built up both in community, but we are also being built up in Christ. And because we are now being built up, Peter reminds us, listen, our worth cannot change. We are upheld by the unchanging honor given and assigned to us by God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now again, Peter again is encouraging the believers. 
Remember his audience. He recognized that these exiles were having a difficult time making sense of their situation. They were having a difficult time processing what was going on. They were finding it hard to see God during their suffering. And so Peter encourages the church by reminding them of their identity. And he says this, at the end of the day, never lose sight of who you are. You belong to Christ. I love what John Calvin says about this point. He says that we are most teachable when we are most miserable. For our ruin compels us to look upward to God. Further, our very poverty better discloses the infinite benefits of reposing in God. We know ourselves and our worth when we look into the face of God. Man, as Christians, we are going to struggle. As Christians, it's going to be hard. Our futures may seem uncertain. I don't think very many of us are very happy with current situations happening all around us. But in these moments, Peter says to us, remember. Remember our identity begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Remember that God chose Christ. He valued and loved Christ eternally for his person and his work. This was a part of God's sovereign plan. And it is now faith that unites us to Christ. So now God treasures and loves us as his restored people. And the beauty of it is that was God's plan A from the beginning of creation. So if I could, I would encourage you with Peter's words again. Remember your identity. Remember you belong to Christ. Remember you have been called to community. Remember what it is that you are now being built up into. Let's pray together.